Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Job as we continue our series, our summer series on theophanies, on face-to-face encounters with God. I want to say a big thank you to Matt Morton and Chris McGuffey who kicked off our series last week. You may be wondering, how do I know who's going to be preaching? What are they going to be preaching? Because we're moving around a lot this summer. There's actually a schedule online. If you just go to our website and click new resources, you'll see face-to-face Click that and a schedule will come up that will tell you where we'll be, what we'll be teaching on any given week. If you're not really an online kind of person, that's okay. We printed some, put them at the information desk in the foyer. So this summer, we're studying theophanies, face-to-face encounters between God and human beings. These theophanies, uh, they appear in different ways. Last week, Chris walked us through one where God appeared in the form of a burning bush to Moses. This morning we'll be seeing God appear in the form of a hurricane to Job. So lots of different ways that God revealed himself. Now these theophanies, these face-to-face encounters, they stand out in scripture because they are so rare. They're so rare. They, They hardly ever happen. Now we really wish they happened more often. I think most of us, if we're honest, we really wish that God would reveal himself visibly and audibly to us more often. He's always present, but he's really visible, and, and we wish that would change. I remember when I was in college, I was really wrestling with my faith. Do I believe in God? Do I believe in this Christianity thing? And I kept thinking, boy, this would just be easier if God would just show up. Come on, just show yourself, talk to me, and then we're good. All my doubts will be gone. And I remember feeling the same way when I was trying to decide what career to pursue and whether to propose to Julie, my, my wife. And I just thought, man, these are huge decisions. It would be way easier if you would just show up and tell me what to do. Why can't you do that? We really want God to show up visibly and audibly and answer our questions, but he hardly ever does. That's not God's way. He's always present, but he's hardly ever visible to the human race. Why is that? Why doesn't God show up visibly more often? Well, because God wants us to live by faith, not by sight. That's how he designed the universe to operate. That's how he designed human life to work. He wants us to live by faith, not by sight. That's why Jesus says at the end of the book of John, blessed are you who believe even though you do not see. You are blessed when you believe in God even though you do not see God. And so God keeps himself invisible. The vast majority of the time, 99.999% of the human race will not see God visibly in this life. But every once in a while, in the pages of scripture, God decided to break that paradigm and to show up visibly and audibly face to face to a particular individual in order to teach the human race something incredibly important about himself. And that's what we're looking at this summer and this morning in the book of Job. We're gonna see when God showed up face to face, visibly and audibly to Job. Now before we can get there, I need to introduce you to the man that this book is named after. What do we know about Job? He lived a long time ago, probably around 4,000 years ago. We learn something about Job right at the beginning of the book. So look with me, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So right at the very beginning, we learn that Job is a righteous man. He's a good man, really good guy. As the book progresses, you learn that he was uh, generous to the poor. He was always honest in his dealings with other people. He walked in purity. Really righteous man, really good man. 
whom God blessed. It's the second thing we learn about Job. God blessed Job early in his life. Look at verse two and three. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And so God has richly blessed Job. He's, he's got an incredible amount of stuff. He's got lots of children. He's very blessed until, starting in the next verse, Job loses everything. Job begins to suffer intensely. He, he loses all of the stuff that he had in life. That begins, actually, let's pick up the story in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Chapter 1, Job loses his children and his wealth in the span of about five minutes. Verse 14, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, do you notice a repeated theme here? Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So in the span of about five minutes, it's about how long it took to, well, it only took about two minutes to read that. In the span of about two minutes, Job loses everything. All, all his wealth, all his possessions, all his servants, and all ten of his sons and daughters. He loses everything in chapter one, and then in chapter two, he is afflicted with an incredibly painful disease. We don't know what it was. We know that from head to toe, he was covered in painful boils, and that it was so intensely painful that he could not talk. He could not carry on a conversation. He just sat for seven days in a pile of ashes and took a broken piece of pottery and scraped the infection off his skin. Incredible affliction in chapter 2. Starting in chapter 3 and through the rest of the book, everyone he loves abandons him. His wife basically turns her back on him. She encourages him to curse God. His friends accuse him of hidden sin because they can't imagine that a righteous man would undergo such pain. All of his neighbors ridicule him. They don't even want to look at him. So in the span of just a couple chapters, Job loses everything and comes under this intense suffering. And what is significant to notice is this is suffering that Job did not deserve. He didn't do something to merit this suffering. Remember, he was a righteous man, a good man. He walked with the Lord. And yet all of a sudden, all of this undeserved, unmerited pain and suffering comes into his life. And so how did Job respond to that undeserved suffering? Well, at first, he actually did really well. When it first came into his life, he did incredibly well. Look with me back at chapter 1, verse 20. When he's lost his possessions and his children... Verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. 
But then he comes under this incredible disease, incredible intense pain in his body. How does he respond? Chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And so at the beginning, Job responds shockingly, well, I don't think that would have been me. This is incredible. Incredible loss and pain he's undergoing, and yet he chooses to worship God and walk with God through it. But after hours of pain turn into days of pain and and weeks of pain, Job begins to falter. He begins to falter under the, the pressure, under the intensity of undeserved suffering. And so beginning of chapter three, he begins to despair of life. Read with me chapter three. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born and the night which said a boy is conceived. Job can't imagine that life can ever get better. And so he despairs of life. He wishes that he would have never been born. So he begins to despair of life in chapter three. And then as the book goes on, Job begins to get angry with God. He begins to accuse God of injustice and cruelty. You see that, for example, in chapter 30. Job says, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. He's speaking to God. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. See, Job looked at the world around him, he looked at the circumstances of his life, and he arrived at what seemed like a reasonable conclusion. He believed that God was sovereign, that God controlled all things, including his suffering. He also knew that he was a righteous man who did not deserve this suffering, and so therefore, logical conclusion, God must be unjust. God must be cruel. Job can't see it any other way. So he begins to accuse God and finally, as he continues to falter under the pressure of undeserved suffering, he begins to demand that God shows up and gives him an answer. Begins to demand God to come and explain himself. Chapter 10, I am weary of my life. I will complain without restraint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Tell me, why are you contending with me? He wants an answer. God, show up and tell me why I'm suffering. Explain yourself to me. He grows more bold as the book progresses by the end of of Job's speeches, chapter 31. If only I had someone to hear me, here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. This this is legal language, this someone to hear you, that's a judge, a signature, that's prosecution, a case. Job is saying, I want to take God to court right now. I want God to show up, let's walk in the courtroom, God, you explain yourself to me. Why are you letting me suffer? I do not deserve this. Why have you let me undergo this incredible pain? Now, I can't condemn Job for calling God to task. Because when I suffer, this is exactly how I feel. Especially if I suffer for a long period of time. If I'm really suffering, if life is really hard and it goes on for a long period of time, I find myself wanting exactly what Job wanted. I want God to show up and explain himself. God, tell me, why is this happening? You are a good and loving father, so why are you allowing all of this pain in my life? That's how we feel when we suffer, when life gets hard, when it's painful. 
when we're doing our best to follow God, when we're really trying to obey, when we're really trying to help other people, we're just doing our best in life. And then we lose our job or our business goes belly up or our parents get a divorce or our spouse walks out or we get a cancer diagnosis or or our spouse or our kids find out they have cancer. That's when we really want God to show up and talk and, and explain himself and tell us why. Why are we suffering when we don't deserve it? When we suffer, we want God to show up and give us an explanation, but we really ought to be careful what we ask for. So that's what Job wanted. He wanted God to show up and explain himself, and so God did. Chapter 38, God shows up. He reveals himself visibly and audibly to Job. Job has demanded that God would come and speak to him, and so God does, but it doesn't go as Job had hoped. It does not fit Job's expectations of what it would be like to speak to God. Look at chapter 38, verse 1, and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Whirlwind, I'm not a fan of that translation. It sounds like a tornado, which is way smaller than what this is. This is a hurricane or a typhoon in the ancient world. This is a massive storm full of incredible wind and hail and lightning and thunder. It's violent. It is not, by nat- it is not naturally explainable. This is a, a supernatural event, a huge storm that shows up and God is in it. So God is in this powerful hurricane and it absolutely terrifies Job. It just overwhelms him. He's, he's completely silent when God shows up. It reminds me, I had a friend in junior high and high school who really for some reason he wanted to try chewing tobacco. I think he saw some of his older friends doing it and thought it was cool. And so he kept asking his parents day after day, let me try chewing tobacco. Come on, he begged him, he begged him. Finally they said, okay. And they handed him a pouch of chewing tobacco and sent him outside, but didn't tell him how to use it. So he, he goes outside the backyard, he starts putting it in his mouth pinch after pinch after pinch, never spitting it out, just swallowing it. And so if, if you know what's going to happen, it didn't take long until he turned white like a sheet, got incredibly sick, and just puked it all up. So this thing that he thought would be great and so fun and so cool, it turned out to be a nightmare. He never touched the stuff again. That's exactly what's happened to Job. He wanted God to show up. That was the desperate desire of his heart, and then God shows up, and it's a nightmare absolutely terrifies him when God arrives in a hurricane. God shows up in this powerful hurricane and then he begins to speak. And as God speaks for the next four chapters, chapter 38 all the way through chapter 41, if you want to understand what God is saying to Job, you have to pay attention both to what God does say and to what God doesn't say. We're going to begin with the latter. What does God not say? Read all four chapters of God's speech to Job. And what you will notice, there's something really big missing. An answer to Job's question. God does not tell him why he is suffering. In all of those verses, God says nothing in answer to Job's question. Job just wanted God to show up and tell him why he was suffering. And God says nothing in answer to that question. Doesn't tell him. Doesn't tell him anything about it. As best we can tell, Job died still not knowing why God had allowed this suffering in his life. He never got an answer from God about why he was suffering. God told him nothing about it. 
But it's really odd and really fortunate for us that God actually tells us. Leave your finger in chapter 38, turn back to chapter 1. The book of Job was not written by Job. It was written long after he had died. God raised up an author. We don't know who this author is, but God raised up this author and then he gave him a vision into heaven, a a prophetic vision to see what was going on behind the scenes that actually explains Job's suffering. So in chapter one, you actually get to see into heaven. You get to see and know something that Job never knew. He never knew any of this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we're about to read. So look with me in chapter 1. God gives us, not Job, he gives us an explanation for Job's suffering. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. What we learn that Job never knew is that it's not God behind the suffering. It's Satan. It's Satan who took away all his possessions. It's Satan who killed all his servants. It's Satan who killed all his kids. And it's Satan who afflicted him with this incredible disease in chapter 2. It was Satan who was at work behind the scenes, not God. Now, now that forces us to ask, why would God say yes to Satan's request? Why would a good and loving God give Satan permission to harm his righteous and good servant Job? Well, the answer is right there actually in the name of Satan. Satan, it's not actually a name like Blake, a proper name. It's actually a title, a description. In, in the Bible, it's actually, everywhere you see, it's not Satan, it's the Satan. It means the accuser. That's what Satan is. He is the accuser of God's people. So what has happened? In the sight of all of heaven, God praises Job. God says, wow, all of you, look at this man. He's incredible, I'm so pleased with him. What does Satan do? In the sight of all of heaven, he accuses Job. What's the essence of of Satan's accusation against Job? Well, Job's not righteous. Job's not good. He's simply opportunistic. He sees profit where it can be made. He knows that being good to you means you'll be good to him. Why shouldn't he follow you? All you do is give him good stuff. And so God looks at Satan and says, okay. Satan, I'm gonna let you go in there and take away all the good stuff, all the profitable stuff that I've given him. I'm gonna let you make him suffer so that Job can prove to you and to all of the host of heaven what a good man he is and what a fool you are. So God gives Satan permission to persecute Job. And what is the result? Well, here we are on on literally the other side of the planet about 4,000 years after Job and we are studying Job as an example of a righteous man. Why? Because he suffered. It's not because he was rich. There's plenty of rich men in the history of the world who we've totally forgotten about. 
We don't care about them. We care about Job because he suffered well. Yes, he faltered in the middle of the book, but he repents at the end and evidences incredible faith. And because of that, he has been a hero, a model of the faith for centuries, for millennia of human beings. So why did God allow Satan to harm Job? Because God knew that something greater would come from it. He saw something greater. He saw that this is how Job would prove to heaven and to all of human history that he was indeed a good and righteous, heroic man. Now we know that, but Job did not. God didn't tell any of this to Job. Job didn't have a a clue what was going on in heaven while pain came into his life. Why? Why? Why didn't God simply tell Job this incredibly significant, incredibly interesting information about what's going on? Why did God leave Job in the dark? Why? Because that's how God works. That's God's way. He does not tell us why particular suffering comes into our lives. When you suffer some particular pain, some particular tragedy, some particular disappointment in life, was it Satan? Was it someone else's sin falling on you? Was it God sparing you from some greater suffering that would have happened otherwise? Is it because God is drawing someone to Christ who's watching how you suffer? You don't know. You won't know this side of heaven. God doesn't tell us in this life why we suffer some particular tragedy. And so since God doesn't tell us, he didn't tell Job either because God knew. If he gave the explanation to Job, then this book would be totally useless to you. What could you learn from this book if Job got an explanation? You don't get an explanation. God wanted this book to be a model to us. He wanted Job to teach us. So God didn't tell him why he was suffering just like he doesn't tell us why we're suffering. That's hard. God knows that's hard. He knows that we desperately want to know why he is allowing suffering into our lives, but God doesn't give us the why that we want. He gives us the why that we need. God doesn't tell us why we're suffering. He tells us something far more important. He tells us why he is worthy of our trust, even when we suffer through no fault of our own. And that's what the divine speech of chapters 38 through 41 is all about. God doesn't tell Job anything about why he is suffering. God takes all four chapters to tell Job, Job, here is why I am worthy of your trust even when you don't understand what I'm doing. So let's look at how God demonstrates his worthiness of trust. There's two speeches here. The first speech is chapter 38 through 39. You can turn back there, chapter 38 and 39. God begins in verse two by summarizing Job's accusation. Okay, here's here's what Job is accusing God of. Look at verse two. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's what God is saying of Job. Darkens counsel. Counsel, it means a plan or a wise decision. That's referring to God's plan for for human beings, for, for human history. So what is happening is Job is darkening God's plan for the world. Job is saying bad things about God's plan. In other words, Job is saying, God, your plan stinks. God, you don't know what you're doing. You're not doing good things. I don't trust you. I don't like what you're doing in my life and in this world. The essence of Job's accusation against God is, God, you simply don't know what you're doing. I could run this world better than you. 
Look at all the suffering in my life and I'm a good man. It proves you don't know what you're doing. So that's Job's accusation that brings about God's first speech. So how does God respond to that accusation? Look with me starting in verse three. Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. So God begins with a pretty big smackdown. That's good. Um, and then he continues. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God takes Job back to the beginning, back to creation. And he says, Job, where were you? Did did you make this world? Did, Did you put it all together? Were you even there to see how it was built? Do you understand anything about how this world works? And then God, in the rest of the chapter, rest of the chapter 38, he walks Job through all of these things in our world, through the the oceans and and the sky and rain and lightning and storms. And and he walks him through all those things. He said, did you make that stuff? Do you command the lightning? Did you move the stars? Do you even understand how they work? Can you explain them to me? Then in chapter 39, God lists out seven creatures that he has made, the the mountain goat, the deer, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, and the hawk. He gives Job a little natural history lesson about each of those creatures. And his point, we'll look at just the last two, the horse and the hawk. God's point is, Job, you didn't make any of these creatures. You didn't design the horse and the hawk. I made them from scratch. No one told me how to do it. I figured it out. I made them from scratch. Job, you don't even understand how a horse can run so fast or a hawk fly so high, and yet you dare to accuse me, the creator who gave the horse his speed and the hawk his flight. Really? You sure about that? What God is trying to get Job to understand is Job is accusing God. God, you do not know what you're doing. You don't know how to run this world. And God is saying, Job, you don't even know enough to accuse me of that. Let's look at the facts. You don't understand this world well enough to make an intelligent judgment about whether I'm doing a good job or not. You don't have enough information. You don't have enough intelligence. I was reminded of that when Time Magazine came this week. I don't know if you guys get it you may have noticed the cover article is all about butter it's about butter and how scientists and doctors and nutritionists after decades of telling us we should avoid butter because it's bad for us now they have changed their mind and decided that butter is actually not that bad and you should have some and I I read that article and I thought about it and I thought man if there was anything that it felt like science had really figured out in the last 40 years it's that butter was bad and and now you're telling me that it's not bad and that's good news for my taste buds but that's really bad news for my pride because come on if we can't figure out butter then we really can't figure out anything. It's, it's proof to me that human beings will always be finite and fallible and limited. Everything we think we have figured out for sure with science comes back under scrutiny again because we really don't know what we're talking about most of the time. We have not figured this universe out. No matter how much we learn and study and grow in knowledge, humans will never get into a place where we can stand in judgment over how God runs his universe. We will never understand his universe well enough to render judgment on how he runs it. That's the first response that God gives to Job. Job, you're not qualified to judge me. 
You don't have nearly enough intelligence or information. That is way beyond your prey grade, brother. You're just never going to be there. That's the first thing God says. But there's something else that God says in this first speech. You can miss it if, if you don't read carefully. As God talks about how he created this universe, over and over again he talks about how good the world is. How incredibly good this world and this universe is to us. I'll give you one example. Look with me again in chapter 38, starting in verse 8. God asks Job, or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors, and I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. What you need to know is that in the ancient world, people were terrified of the ocean. They didn't have big boats. They didn't have reliable navigation. So you go out on the ocean and you are probably going to die. That's what they thought. It was a symbol of chaos and potential death in the ancient world. And what God is reminding Job is, Job, I'm the one who restrained the sea that you fear, that you are so afraid of. I'm the one who put it in its place and set its boundaries so that you would have dry land to live on. And then God continues throughout the rest of the chapter. I'm the one who gave you light to drive away the darkness that you fear. I'm the one who gave you seasons so that you can tell time. I'm the one who gives you rain so your crops will grow so you will have food. God's point, what he's trying to get Job to understand is, Job, you accuse me of not knowing what I'm doing. Just look around at the beautiful, wonderful world I have made. It is proof that I know what I'm doing. I don't know about you guys, but when I suffer, I tend to get tunnel vision. I think that's what's happening to Job. He's been suffering now for weeks of of just incredible pain and loss. He's gotten tunnel vision. All he can see is the bad stuff in his life. All he can see is the pain. He's lost sight of all the good things that God has made. And so God is challenging Job to lift up his eyes and see the beauty and the wonder, the wisdom, the goodness of this universe that God has given us. He gave us life. He gave us a planet that takes care of all of our needs. We didn't make the earth. It's God's good gift to us. He provides us food and water and air that we take for granted every day of our lives. God has provided richly for us and that is proof that you can trust him. Even when you suffer and don't know why, God has demonstrated to us he knows what he's doing. He really does. So that's the point of God's first speech to Job. Now let's look at the the second speech. Chapters 40 through 41. God speaks a second time. The accusation that that God wants to tackle in this second speech is right there uh, towards the beginning of chapter 40. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? What God is saying is, Job, the essence of what you are saying to me is that you believe that I am unjust which means you believe you are just. It means you believe you are a good judge of what is right and what is wrong, and you've declared that I am in the wrong. Well, that's Job's accusation. He's saying, God, you are unjust. You're not doing what is right. You are doing what is evil. And so God tackles this second objection in his second speech. God begins with a challenge. Look at verse 10. He says to Job, 
Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. What God is saying is, okay, Job, you think you're a better judge than me. You think you are a better determiner and punisher of right and wrong than I am. Okay, get to it. Go out there, punish the wicked. Tread down the prideful. Deliver the innocent. Go ahead, Job. Be the judge. And then God does something very strange. After challenging Job to go out there and be a better judge than God, God turns to a natural history lesson for the rest of the book, if you've read it, rest of the speech, God begins to describe two creatures found out in the wild world, two creatures, behemoth and leviathan. Very strange what God does. Look with me, verse 15. Behold now, God says, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. Behemoth, we, we don't know what it is. Not, not sure. It could have been a description of a dinosaur, some huge ancient creature. Most scholars think it's probably about a large adult hippopotamus, that that's what this creature would be that's being described. He's got a big hippo. God describes a hippo for a while, and then chapter 41, he turns to another creature. Chapter 41, verse 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Again, we don't know what creature this is. Could have been a dinosaur, some ancient sea creature. Most scholars, though, think it's probably about some ancient form of a crocodile, some huge croc. And so God goes on for the rest of that whole chapter, chapter 41, describing what we think is a crocodile. And that forces you to ask, what is God doing in this speech? Why is he giving a natural history lesson about hippos and crocs to a guy who is in pain and suffering? Has a natural history lesson have anything to do with Job's suffering? Well, the key to understanding that is you've got to understand what ancient people thought about hippos and crocs. They were absolutely terrified of them. Remember, in the ancient world, no one has a gun. No one has a rifle. There's, there's no weapons like that. And a, an adult hippo, you're talking about a creature that's about three tons. It can run 20 miles an hour. It's considered one of the most aggressive and dangerous creatures on earth. A large ancient crocodile, you're talking about something that weighs over 4,000 pounds, more than 20 feet long, and yet it can hide itself in a creek until you come up to get a drink, and then it just kills you. So in the ancient world, they didn't hunt crocs and hippos they ran from them they were terrified of them in fact the egyptians worshiped them as demonic gods of destruction egyptians thought hippos and crocs that's what's going to destroy the human race so ancient humanity regarded hippos and crocs as symbols of evil so what god is saying to job is okay job you think you are a better judge of righteousness than me you think you're a better king and lawgiver than me okay then Get out there and judge these symbols of evil. Go and subdue the hippo and the croc. Deliver your people who are killed all the time by hippos and crocs. Deliver yourself. Job knew he couldn't. No one stood a chance against any of those creatures except God. And that's actually a common theme throughout Scripture. God's imminent power over every creature, including behemoth and Leviathan. For example, Psalm 74, you crushed the heads of Leviathan, it says of God. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. 
The point what God is trying to get Job to understand is, Job, I am the only being in the universe who has the power to defeat evil and uphold righteousness. I'm the only one who can do it. If if I'm not your judge, if I'm not the one bringing justice to earth, then you have no hope. Evil will win, you will die. That's it. You, you either you, you, you hold to me, you believe in me, you trust in me, or you have no basis to hope in anything. God's trying to get Job to understand, Job, it is ridiculous to accuse me of injustice when I am the only being in the universe who has the power to uphold justice. I am your only hope against evil. You must cling to me. And we've covered a lot of ground this morning. I knew it would be a big task trying to cover the whole book of Job in one morning. So let me summarize. Let's try to boil this down and distill it with a big idea. What is the big idea of the book of Job? What is it that God wants you to to know and take away from this book? Well, when you suffer, when life gets hard, when you are disappointed, when things don't work out how you intend, when, when pain comes calling in your life, When you suffer, what you want to know is why God is letting that happen. That's our natural response. When we suffer, when we're in pain, we want to know why. God, why is this happening to me? It's the age-old problem of evil. Why would a good, loving, all-powerful God allow pain and evil into the lives of his children? We want to know why we're suffering. But here's the deal. God is almost certainly not going to tell you in this life. That's not how he operates. He didn't tell Job. He's not going to tell us. God doesn't tell us why we're suffering because God doesn't owe us an explanation. He's God and we're not. He doesn't owe us anything. He does not have to explain himself or justify himself to us. God doesn't really care whether we know why we're suffering some particular pain. That's not important to God. When you suffer, what God wants you to know is not why you are suffering. What he wants you to know is why he is worthy of your trust even in the midst of suffering you don't deserve. That's what's important to God. That you would understand why he is worthy of your trust and your dependence even when you don't know what in the world he's doing. And so the question of the book of Job is when you're suffering, when you're disappointed, when life is painful and falling apart around you, will you surrender question number one and embrace question number two? That's the question of the book of Job. When life gets hard, when life gets painful, will you surrender your right to know why this is happening to you? Will you let go of that need to get an explanation from God and instead choose simply to trust that God knows what he's doing, that God is good and loving and powerful even if circumstances say otherwise? Job was willing. That's why Job is a hero of the faith. That's why he's a model to us because at the end of the book, chapter 42, Job was willing to surrender the first question and embrace the second. Look with me, chapter 42. God has finished speaking in the hurricane. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. 
things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. It's one of the most beautiful speeches you'll find anywhere in your Bible. Job has heard the Lord. He has seen the Lord and now he repents. He comes before God on his knees and he says, God, you are in the right. I was in the wrong. You don't owe me an explanation. You're God and I am not. I have no right to accuse you. I simply submit to you. I choose to trust that you are good and right, that you know what you're doing even if I have no clue what it is. Job was willing to surrender the first question and embrace the second The question is, are you? When you suffer, when life is hard, when it doesn't go your way, when you're depressed and disappointed, are you willing to let go of of an explanation? Are you willing to live with the fact that God's not gonna tell you why you're suffering? Can you be okay with that and let go of that need and instead just grab a hold of the second that God is worthy of your trust even if circumstances say otherwise? That's the essence of the Christian life, that you are willing to trust God God. That's where Christianity begins. Christian life. You don't get into Christianity through good deeds or coming to church or getting baptized. You enter into Christianity by choosing to trust God, to forgive you and to save you, not based on anything you have done, but based on on the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for you and then rose from the dead to set you free from the tyranny of death. Christianity begins with trust. That's how you know if you're a Christian. Not because you're here this morning, not because you read your Bible or pray. It's because you've chosen to trust God for salvation based on Jesus' death and resurrection. That's where Christianity begins. That's also how Christianity grows. Do you want to know if you're mature as a follower of Christ? Do you want to know if you are growing in, in your walk with Jesus? Well, it's not about how much you're out there doing for God. It's about how your trust is growing. That's the measure of maturity in our lives, that we are growing to trust God more and more deeply with more and more of our lives, that we're willing to trust him not just with our eternal souls, but with our relationships and our marriages, and our kids, and our jobs, and our health, and everything in our lives? Are you growing to trust God and give him more and more of your life? That is the measure of success as a Christian. That's what pleases God. Not how much you're out there doing for him, but how much you are growing to trust him more and more deeply with more and more of your life. The question of the book of Job is when suffering comes, when hardships come, Will you choose to be okay with the fact that God is not going to explain himself to you? Will you choose instead to trust that he is good and he is powerful and he is worthy and he loves you even if circumstances say otherwise? That's hard to do. So let's go to the Lord and pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we exalt you that you are a God who is worthy of our trust. You are the creator, you are the great I am, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are all powerful and all wise. You see and know and understand all things. You are always good, you are always righteous. You have created a world that is a blessing to us. You have given us goodness and grace every day of our lives. We, we know that theologically, Lord, but when we suffer, when life gets hard and disappointing and depressing, it is so easy for us, Lord, to doubt you 
So often we come to you and we demand an explanation. We want to know why we are suffering. And so, Father, we confess that to you. You do not owe us an explanation. You are God and we are not. Lord, we come before you like Job. We repent before you. We pray that you would help us to to surrender our need to know why we're suffering and instead simply believe that you are worthy of our trust even when life is falling apart around us. I pray that we would choose to believe that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are wise, that you know what you're doing, that you love us and that you will make all things right even if we don't understand how. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, grow our trust, help us to walk in greater dependence upon you. Help us to give to you in faith every part of our lives, not just our souls, not just our spiritual life, but all of the regular things, the mundane, the earthly things in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would give them all to you in faith and trust that you will watch over us, that you will protect us, that you are good, that you are worthy. Father, we praise you and thank you for who you are. We praise you and thank you that you showed up in a hurricane to teach Job so that we could learn from him. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.